Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash KAU. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK Limited. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer. This activity comprises three presentations featuring a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I am Domenica Loruso. I'm a GYM oncologist from Fondazione Policlinico Gemelli Home Rome. Welcome, dear colleagues, to this activity on the current management of endometrial cancer a multidisciplinarity approach to optimize the care of our patient. Joining me for this interesting IOP discussion are two of my estimated colleagues and good friends, Anna Tinker from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and Susanna Banerjee from the Royal Marsden Foundation Trust in London, United Kingdom. Welcome both. Endometrial cancer is the most frequently occurring female genital cancer. Basically, more than 75% of patients are diagnosed at stage 1 or 2 when disease is confined to the uterus and this impact on prognosis. Nevertheless, advanced disease is treated with surgery alone or with chemotherapy and radiation therapy may be an appropriate alternative in several conditions. For several years, we believed that endometrial cancer was represented by only two tumors classified about the histology. But recently, a molecular classification of disease has been introduced, and the TGCA project clearly reported that endometrial cancer are at least four different tumors with different molecular profiling, different history of disease and also different possibility of treatment approach. And this is the reality now for our patient. Based on this consideration, it's of utmost importance that these patients are carefully counseled about the diagnostic and treatment alternatives they have. And this should be done according to what the key recommendation of guidelines report in a multidisciplinary setting. The multidisciplinary setting generally is represented by a tumor board meeting composed by several specialists according to the local guidelines. And the multidisciplinary tumor board gave precise indication knowing the prognostic and predictive factor of outcome, morbidity, and quality of life. It is of utmost importance to guarantee the best treatment for our patient that the treatment is undertaken in a specialized center by a dedicated team of specialists in the diagnosis and management of gynecological cancer. The board is composed by many players the surgeon, the radiologist, the pathologist, and the oncologist, but other specialists may be activated when necessary. I'd like to ask to Susanna, what is your experience in your hospital about this multidisciplinary discussion? 
Thank you, Ketta. The multidisciplinary team is integral to every patient's care pathway. Um, and the key point is having an expert discussion about an individual patient's management decisions and the recommendations. So talking about different options, because there may be more than one option for a patient. And as you've highlighted, um, the key core members of a multidisciplinary team making such decisions include the um, gynecological surgeon, so gynae-oncologist, the radiation specialist, the medical oncologist, the pathologist, the radiologist, uh, looking at imaging, and also um, in our institution, um, nursing nurses who are integral to the um, uh, patient's management. Um, and I think it's really important to have a minimum of one uh, specialist representing each of these modalities. It's, it's very valuable having more than one um, so that you can discuss different opinions potentially and different um, recommendations and options and evaluate the best care for our patients. Thank you, Susanna. Very, very interesting. Anna, how manage you this patient in your hospital in a multidisciplinary setting? I really have to agree with what Susanna has said. The multidisciplinary team is, is essential in the proper care of our patients. Um, you know, involved in that is not only the medical specialists, but all of the support services. Um, I would say also the role of the family becomes important in, in looking after our patients. And, you know, in our institution, we really work hard to make sure we have a proper review of each case by each of our subspecialists to make sure we're making good surgical, um, systemic therapy decisions and radiation therapy decisions. And also that the pathology is pinned down, um, all elements have been reviewed. And then we look at the patient as a whole. Um, what is their life like? What are their comorbidities? You know, we really bring in that whole spectrum of, uh, or the full perspective on the patient to make sure each case is individualized and all options are considered. Thank you, Anna. So what is clear is there is not a size fit for all and also particularly in the setting of advanced and metastatic disease, the recurrence may be quite different from patient to patient. It may be symptomatic or asymptomatic, uh, may be treated with surgery or medical treatment or hormonal treatment. So the rule of multidisciplinary tumor board, it is even more important at the time of recurrence because the tumor board should evaluate the best treatment option for that patient with recurrent endometrial cancer. And uh, exactly the type of treatment uh, will depend on several factors, including the location and the extent of disease, the previous treatment, and also the patient preference. And particularly now we are facing the new era of immunotherapy treatment also in endometrial cancer. And in this scenario, other colleagues in other disciplines, in other specialties, are managing immunotherapy since more time than us. Susanna, in your opinion, what we have learned, what we can learn from the other specialists about the management of immunotherapy? So immunotherapy um, has been standard of care for multiple tumor types, for example, um, melanoma, lung cancer, 
And it's essential that we learn from our um, oncology colleagues rather than reinventing the wheel for individual tumours. For example, the dose, the schedule, um, the, the investigations required when we're managing patients with immunotherapy, the monitoring, the evaluation, and importantly, the management of toxicities. Um, because even though there may be individual aspects for tumour type, the general side effects are very similar uh, with immunotherapy, for example, the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors that, that I'm referring to. Um, so like um, our colleagues have learnt from us with regards to PARP inhibitors from the gynae field across other tumour types like breast and prostate cancer, we are learning um, from our colleagues regarding immunotherapy. And I think that's, that's a great um, interaction and collaboration that will really help um, help patients going forward. Fully agree with you, Susanna. Anna, what are your thoughts about uh, Susanna's vision? Yeah, thank you, Keta. Um, I think Susanna's hit some of the really important points about our colleagues and other specialties and what we can learn from them. Um, I would also say that, uh, you know, our colleagues who treat other disease types have been doing this for years, um, you know, before the gynae field. Um, and so they've developed networks and connections. Um, they, they know who to refer to for various problems. And I think that's where we really want to lean on them to, to learn what is the system they use? How do they navigate, you know, various toxicities and which specialists do they go to? Um, and, and go to those same people because those are the folks with the expertise. Um, our, so our colleagues have paved the way for us and I think we should do our best to jump in on, on what they've done and use those same systems to support our patients. So thank you both of you uh, for this interesting discussion. Uh, as a take-home message for our colleagues, uh, endometrial cancer is the most frequently occurring female genital cancer. It's not a single disease, but at least four different tumors with potentially different treatment strategies. And the most important thing is that in this scenario, an integrated approach in a multidisciplinary setting to care for patients with endometrial cancer in terms of diagnosis uh, therapeutics, survival, and quality of life is essential to improve the outcome of our patient. Thank you for your attention. Hello, this is Domenica Lorusso, GYM Oncologist at Fondazione Policlinico Gemelli of Rome, and welcome to this activity on molecular testing in endometrial cancer. Who, what, how, and when? Joining me the, for this discussion are two my estimated colleagues, Anna Tinker from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and Susanna Banerjee from the Royal Marsden Trust Foundation Trust in London, United Kingdom. Welcome, both of you. For several years, we consider endometrial cancer two different tumors, mainly based on the histological classification in endometroid and non-endometroid tumor. But the completion of the TGCA project clearly reported that endometrial cancer are four different tumors with different molecular profiling, different natural history of disease, different prognosis, and potentially also different treatment strategies. In this scenario, we discovered that approximately 3 to 5% of all endometrial carcinoma 
can be attributed to the Lynch syndrome, which is caused by the germline mutation of uh, MMR genes, which are involved in DNA repair. In patients with uh, Lynch syndrome, has a 40 to 60% lifetime risk of having endometrial, but also colon cancer. So you can imagine how important it is to get this information. And this is why most of the guidelines suggest that the molecular classification of endometrial cancer should be integrated the clinical classification and all patients should receive evaluation for several biomarkers. And in particular, the most important ones are represented by poly, P53, MSI, and hormone receptor factor. In Italy, for instance, we test all patients for MMI according to immunohistochemistry, and only patients with unstable tumor, after excluding an epigenetic inactivation, move to the genetic counseling to exclude the Lynch syndrome. Um, Susanna, what is the situation in your country about MSI screening? So similar to, to your experience, Keta, so we use immunohistochemistry to identify tumours with mismatch repair deficiency in England. So um, if um, IHC is abnormal with loss of MLH1 or loss of both MLH1 and PMS2 protein expression, we then go on to do MLH1 um, promoter hypermethylation testing of the tumour DNA itself. And then if the MLH1 promoter hypermethylation is not detected, then we go on to offer germline genetic testing to confirm Lynch syndrome. So if the IHC is abnormal with loss of MSH2, MSH6, or isolated PMS2 protein expression, then again, we offer germline genetic testing to confirm Lynch syndrome. I think what's key um, is for when healthcare professionals are counselling women with endometrial carcinoma undergoing this testing, that we inform patients about the possible implications for themselves and also their relatives and give the relevant support um, and information. Susanna, you, you touch a very important point. This information is important for the patient, but also for the relatives. And I would like to say what Anna says about that and what is the situation of screening in Canada about MSI. Thanks, Keta. Um, yeah, I think in, in, in Canada, we are very fortunate. We have reflex testing for all newly diagnosed endometrial cancers. Um, so we get very early molecular characterization of our patients and we follow the steps very much as outlined by Susanna um, with um, promoter hypermethylation testing for MLH1 um, mutated tumors. And uh, we use that for obviously treatment decision making and identification of patients who may be at risk for uh, hereditary cancer syndrome. This information will have several implications about treatment, and the implications are different in the adjuvant or metastatic setting. And I want to speak with you about the implication in the adjuvant setting. How you manage a P53 mute patient? Thanks, Keta. Yeah, this is an important question. Um, we do know that P53 mutated tumors have a much higher risk of future recurrence. 
Um, we do reflex testing for P53 in, in our um, patients here diagnosed with endometrial cancer. And we integrate P53 into our decision making uh, about adjuvant therapy. And particularly, it's an important question for systemic therapy because the risk is uh, systemic, distant relapses. Um, we've used the ESGO guidelines for the most part to help integrate molecular profiling into our treatment paradigms. So early stage patients with found to have a P53 mutated tumor would typically be reviewed in our multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, we would integrate the patient factors that influence how we decide about treatment and what we offer patients. But we're very often looking at adding systemic therapy as an adjuvant treatment to help reduce the risk of future recurrence. Um, obviously, any time that patients can participate in a clinical trial um, addressing important questions about the benefit of therapy, we would also be looking at that if available. And Susie, this uh, information in the metastatic setting, what implication have? How do you manage P53 mute tumor in the advanced disease? So generally, the P53 mutated tumors um, are more high risk, more aggressive, and many of these patients um, are undergoing chemotherapy. Um, it's important to integrate the P53 mutation status, but also thinking about the MMR status as well, because for some of those patients with the approval of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab, some of them may receive um, this combination um, uh, instead of chemotherapy as one of the lines of treatment. But thinking forward, it may well be that this is the group of patients that would benefit from DNA damage response inhibitors, such as PARP inhibitors or WE1 inhibitors. And that's where um, the clinical trials are imperative for us to um, learn to see if this group of patients may benefit more from these new drugs um, within clinical trials and then hopefully into practice. And now you manage MSI high tumor, a tumor with a genomic instability in the adjuvant setting and now have a different treatment algorithm or not? Yes, Kata, we have started to change our approach to mismatch uh, repair deficient or MSI high tumors in particular. Um, as you know, based on the PORTEC3 data, there appears to be very little evidence that adjuvant systemic therapy is a benefit for these patients. That information is being integrated into treatment guidelines, including the ESGO guidelines. And locally, we have adopted um, a lot of that into our treatment paradigms. So as we screen all patients for their MSI or mismatch repair deficiency status, um, we do know in, at the time of decision making uh, what their status is, and depending on the stage of the patients, particularly for the early stage, stage one and two patients, we've now started to discuss the fact that systemic chemotherapy may be of no benefit, and we are recommending no longer giving chemotherapy to that patient group. Now again, the data is currently based on retrospective analyses of a randomized phase three trial. Um, if there would be a, a well-designed and appropriate study in the setting, it would be something we would be offering our patients. But right now, uh, without that kind of trial running in our center, uh, we are mostly 
um, telling women to withhold chemotherapy if their tumor is mismatch repair deficient in the early stages. Um, however, when it comes to mismatch repair deficient tumors or MSI high tumors, radiation remains uh, an important consideration and they are uh, still very often treated with adjuvant radiotherapy. Very, very interesting. We spoke about P53 and MSI, but there are some other biomarkers. For instance, the expression of hormonal receptor. Um, how do you manage this information in your clinical practice, Susanna? So firstly, for the MSI um, high um, in, in the recurrent advanced setting, I would be doing everything I can to try and access a PD-1 inhibitor, for example, dostalimab or pembrolizumab. Um, given the trial data that we have um, showing the efficacy in this group. And then, of course, lenvatinib and pembrolizumab um, uh, in, in, with the EMA approval, irrespective of MMR status. Now, moving on to um, the hormone receptor status, um, I would certainly be considering um, hormonal therapy, either progesterone-based or estrogen-based for women um, that uh, have tumors that express hormone receptors. But to make that decision, we also look at clinical factors. For example, the volume of disease, the pace of disease, the symptom burden, and of course, the performance status and the toxicity profile of other options such as the lenvastinib and pembrolizumab or chemotherapy, which may also be options for these patients. So it's putting this all together. And in terms of moving forward in clinical trials, I'm very interested in the responses that we see with the combination of hormonal therapy with CDK4-6 inhibitors and other um, therapies targeting the um, estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor pathway. Absolutely agree with you. In, I want to ask Anna, there is another interesting biomarker, which is the R2 that unfortunately is not uh, uh, impacting clinical practice, but there are some scientific data very interesting addressing this biomarker. Um, can you say uh, something about that? And can you also say what is the situation in Canada? How do you manage this information? So unfortunately in Canada, we face some of the similar barriers you might be facing uh, in Europe, Keta. Um, as you know, we have some very interesting randomized phase two data demonstrating that the addition of uh, anti-HER2 therapy to the treatment of serous tumors that overexpress HER2 has been shown to improve progression-free and, and now overall survival. Um, granted, it was a small trial, um, and I'm sure you and, and our listeners know that there is a, a planned phase three trial looking at chemotherapy with trastuzumab, chemotherapy with trastuzumab and pertuzumab, and also chemotherapy alone in this patient population. So um, sort of a confirmatory trial, but also an intensified treatment trial as well. Now that study is, is just in its infancy, so the results are, are not gonna be available for some time. But based on that phase two data, it's very compelling that adding uh, uh, anti-HER2 therapy to these cases uh, is beneficial. We do not in Canada have access to, to treatment. It's not funded, it's not on label. But for select cases, we do look at um, testing for HER2. 
and, uh, and if there's any way for patients to find funding um, or insurance coverage, we would explore that opportunity with them. But unfortunately, as of yet, it's not uh, available on a widespread level. Thank you both of you for this interesting discussion. As a take-home message for our colleagues, approximately 3% of all endometrial carcinoma and about 10% of uh, mismatch repair endometrial carcinoma are related to germline mutation in one of the mismatch repair genes. Testing for this mismatch repair genes is relevant. It's relevant because it offers us the possibility to identify patients with Lich syndrome and it is relevant because it is a prognostic marker but also predictive of the potential utility of the immune checkpoint inhibitor in the treatment algorithm. And for several reasons, including this one, molecular profiling is recommended in all endometrial carcinoma, especially in high grade, but I would say in all endometrial patients. Thank you so much for joining these educational activities with us. Hello, this is Domenica Lorusso, GYM oncologist from Fondazione Policlinico Gemelli Home Rome in Italy. Welcome to this activity on treatment option for advanced recurrent endometrial cancer, choosing the right therapy for the right patient. Joining me in this discussion are two of my estimated colleagues and good friends, Anna Tinka from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and Susanna Banerjee from the Royal Master Foundation Trust in London, United Kingdom. Welcome both of you. So, all the evidence we have right now on the molecular classification of endometrial cancer and its implication for treatment derive from retrospective subgroup analysis of clinical data. So in order to increase the level of evidence of the treatment uh, um, for according to the molecular classification, we are implementing a large European, but I would say global phase three trial. In this rainbow program, patients with endometrial cancer, all histological subtypes, receive a molecular profiling and according to the molecular classification are randomizing four different trials with four different treatments. In particular, P53 mute tumor are randomized to receive chemoradiation or chemoradiation followed by PARP inhibitor. MMRD tumor, tumor linked to mismatch repair, are randomized to receive radiation treatment or radiation treatment followed by immune therapy, PDL1 inhibitor. Tumor with non-specific molecular profile are randomized to receive radiation or radiation followed by hormonal therapy. And finally, the polymute tumor, which seems to have a very good prognosis, are not randomized to any kind of adjuvant treatment, but simply registered for prognosis. The guidelines for the management of advanced disease are quite complex and uh, contemplate different strategies according to the type of recurrence we have. The strategies move from surgery to chemotherapy to hormonal therapy and more recently also immunotherapy and combination of immunotherapy. Um, it's my very 
uh, interest to know, speaking with Susanna and Anna, if these guidelines are implemented in their country. And uh, basically, if you can offer right now immunotherapy to all patients. So it's been really exciting times um, in the field of treating uh, women with advanced recurrent endometrial ca carcinoma. And um, at the moment, um, we are able to um, access the PD-1 inhibitor dostalimab um, in England for women with MMR deficient, MSI high, um, recurrent advanced endometrial cancer that have had prior platinum therapy. Um, and we can also access lenvatinib with pembrolizumab um, through um, uh, an access program. Um, and that's regardless of the MMR deficiency status in line with the EMA approval. And of course, let's not forget clinical trials uh, and access to uh, novel immunotherapy combinations. Hannah, what is the situation in Canada? Can you offer right now immunotherapy to your patient? So the situation in Canada resembles what Susanna has described uh, in the UK. We are very fortunate. It is indeed exciting times for our patients. Um, we currently have two access programs to um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So we have access to dostarlimab and pembrolizumab for mismetroparet-deficient endometrial cancers. Um, and, and that's obviously been very um, advantageous for our patients and exciting to, to have those treatments. We also have um, partial access to the combination of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. By that, I mean we have uh, a compassionate access program for lenvatinib, but not for pembrolizumab. So the use of that combination has been um, more limited and restricted maybe to those who can afford to pay for pembrolizumab or have insurance coverage for it. Um, and, and so I guess we're um, very pleased that our mismatch-repair deficient patients have options. We are still struggling with the best access to care for those with mismatch-repair proficient tumors. Yes, these are the evidence we have uh, in the advanced setting, but uh, several ongoing trials are trying to move immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting or in the first-line metastatic setting. And in the coming years, uh, probably in the next two years, we will have several new results of trial combining immunotherapy to chemo or immunotherapy to chemo plus PARP inhibitor in the first-line setting of endometrial cancer. But actually, immunotherapy, as Susanna and Anna report, is right now a reality for the advance of metastatic setting, thanks to several very interesting trials we get in the last years. And I would ask Susanna in particular to speak about one of the uh, treatment possibility we have for our patient, which is represented by pembrolizumab. Thank you, Kessa. So um, I'm just going to mention the Keynote 158 study. It's a multi-cohort study um, across uh, different tumor types. Um, and uh, the endometrial carcinoma cohort with MSI high or MMR deficiency was published earlier this year. And what's really clear is that um, pembrolizumab is active in women with recurrent advanced endometrial cancer um, who have had prior platinum therapy. And what we see in the efficacy population of this open-label, uh, non-randomized phase two study 
is that the response rate was 48%, and the median progression-free survival was around 13 months, and importantly, the duration of response had not been reached. So this has led to um, the EMA approval of pembrolizumab for women with advanced recurrent endometrial carcinoma with MSI high or MMR deficiency that have had prior platinum. Um, and that's the situation uh, where we are now in 2022. And when we think about efficacy, it's always um, essential uh, to think about the toxicities that our patients may experience as well. Um, and so within Keynote 158 with pembrolizumab, with any grade treatment-related adverse events was around 75, 76%. And the most common events were um, skin-related tiredness and diarrhea. In terms of grade three or four treatment-related adverse events, that rate was substantially less at 12%, and only 7% discontinued um, therapy due to a treatment-related adverse event. Very interesting. These drugs are really changing the natural history of disease in our patient. There is another drug I want to speak with Anna, which is dostarlimab, which was firstly approved, was the first we, we had the possibility to manage in the European community. Anna, uh, can you say something about dostarlimab? Thank you, Keda. Yes, uh, dostarlimab is indeed a, a very exciting drug and treatment opportunity for our patients. So as you know, it was studied as part of the Garnet clinical trial. That was a, a phase one single arm study, but it had multiple treatment cohorts and endometrial cancer was amongst those. Uh, in particular, we, there were cohorts with mismatch repair deficient and also mismatch repair proficient endometrial cancers. The study included an expansion of the endometrial cancer mismatch repair deficient cohort because of some of the initial activity seen. So now we have approximately 129 patients in that expanded cohort, probably the largest series uh, produced to date. And uh, that study has demonstrated some really interesting results. Um, there's also approximately 161 patients in the mismatch repair proficient cohort um, as it was also expanded. And again, some very interesting data. Um, the, the things to note about dostarlimab include the treatment schedule, um, it's initially given every three weeks for the first four cycles, and then it goes on to uh, every six-week dosing, so it has a very convenient treatment schedule. And for this study, mismatch repair uh, status was determined by local labs, uh, typically by immunohistochemistry. The study's endpoints included response rate and duration of response. And the eligible population were patients who had already received chemotherapy, no more than two prior lines in the setting of metastatic or recurrent disease. The results of the study were, have been published and they're very informative. So first of all, in the mismatch repair deficient cohort, the overall uh, objective response rate was 46%. So nearly 50% of patients benefited by having some response to treatment. Um, another 13% or so had stable disease and roughly 35% had progression um, as their response. What's really exciting though is that the duration of response seems to be quite long. So amongst those who do respond, the median duration of response is not yet reached. Um, 
and that that I think is a really exciting and um, sort of unique observation seen with immune checkpoint inhibitors, something we don't normally see with standard systemic therapies. So at, for example, the probability of remaining in response at the one-year mark was 90%. So if a patient did respond, they were going to do quite well. Based on these uh, very exciting results, um, the EMA and the FDA approved Dostarlimab for mismatch repair deficient or MSI high recurrent endometrial cancers. Um, so that's a very exciting and excellent um, opportunity for our patients. Um, amongst the mismatch repair proficient cohort, responses were um, lower. The objective response rate was just under 15%. The median duration of response amongst responders has also not yet been reached in the trial. The possibility of remaining in response at the 12-month mark um, was approximately 60%. So again, seeing some uh, meaningful long-term um, responses in patients, um, although not not as many patients do respond, those who are lucky enough to achieve a response seem to do very well in the long term. So we don't yet have a single agent approval uh, to treat these, this patient cohort with um, um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, but as, as we're going to discuss, they do have other treatment opportunities. So the final thing to mention is around the safety profile of Dostarlimab. Um, the safety profile is very much in keeping with what we see with uh, most PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Um, there were no new or significantly different uh, safety signals. Most of the toxicities reported were low grade, and it's very common for patients to experience some sort of treatment-related toxicity. Uh, I think roughly 60-65% of patients did have some degree of toxicity. But high-grade toxicities and you know grade three or higher were quite rare, probably 15% or fewer. Some of the most common ones would include um, anemia, uh, elevation of the transaminases, diarrhea, fatigue, um, lipase increases. There's definitely um, autoimmune-related um, toxicities. Thyroid, um, dermatitis were common, but typically not high-grade. So I think the safety profile is very much in keeping with what we would expect from this class of drugs and mostly quite manageable. Susanna, uh, immunotherapy single agent uh, is an outstanding opportunity for MSI tumor, but what about MSS tumor? What we can offer to our patient without uh, instability? So, um, uh, the combination that has now changed practice stems from the initial findings of the Keynote 146 study, and that's of lenvatinib, which is a multi-kinase inhibitor of vascular endothelial growth factor 1 to 3, so an anti-angiogenic agent in combination with a PD-1 inhibitor, pembrolizumab. And in this study in endometrial carcinoma, we see that across um, uh, the patients, irrespective of MMR deficiency status, the response rate was 38%. Now, putting that into context compared to standard of care chemotherapy or hormonal therapy, this is clearly substantial. And this was a um, non-randomized um, um, study, the initial findings. And what we saw was that there was activity 
um, regardless of MMR um, status. So activity was seen in the um, MMR proficient with a response rate of around 36% and also in the MMR deficient, uh, low numbers of patients, but a high response rate of around 60% or so. And when we look at the different histological subtypes, there was clinical activity across um, uh, the serous as well as the clear cell and endometrioid um, histological subtypes. And these findings led to the practice changing phase three randomized trial, the Keynote 775 study 309. And in this study, women with advanced metastatic or recurrent endometrial carcinoma were enrolled um, and the tissue needed to be available for the MMR um, testing. Uh, and patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either lenvatinib, that's 20 milligrams, um, an oral agent, and, and pembrolizumab, 200 milligrams three-weekly, or standard of care chemotherapy, which in this study was either doxorubicin or weekly paclitaxel. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. And the results were remarkable and landmark in endometrial carcinoma. And in the um, MMR proficient group that you highlighted, there was a significant um, increase in progression-free survival for the women treated with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab compared to standard of care chemotherapy. And that advantage, that progression-free survival advantage was seen in the all-comers group as well. So the median um, PFS in the MMR proficient group um, was increased from 3.8 months to 6.6 months. So when we also look at overall survival, we see that there was um, an increase in overall survival as well for the MMR proficient group and the all comers group with this novel non-chemotherapy combination of lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab. Very interesting data, Susanna, really four months increase in PFS and seven months increase in overall survival is something that we did not manage in endometrial cancer since several years. But what is the toxicity of this combo? You highlight a really important point, which is with all this remarkable efficacy, we need to balance in particular in the non-curative setting, the toxicities and the quality of life. And so with the combination of an anti-angiogenic agent and uh, PD-1 inhibitor with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab, um, we see hypertension as being something that we need to look out for in our patients in the clinic. So the hypertension rates um, for grade three or more was um, over, over a third of patients. Diarrhea is something that we need to look out for clinically as well. So for all grades, it's more than half patients experiencing diarrhea significant grade three or more diarrhea um, was around 7% or so. Also in practice, fatigue um, as well. And we also need to look out for hypothyroidism, which is treatable and manageable um, with, with, um, with the replacement of the thyroid hormones. But they're the key side effects that I would be looking out for in clinic and to manage this with dose interruptions and dose reductions. In the study, there was performance um, planned subgroup analysis on uh, mismatch repair deficient tumor. What are the results of this analysis, Susie? So it's very nice to see that the activity of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab occurred in both patients 
which were MMR proficient as well as MMR deficient. So in this subgroup analysis, as you mentioned, the overall survival in the MMR deficient um, group with chemotherapy was um, uh, around eight months and the median overall survival was not reached in the lenvatinib and pembrolizumab arm. So what this shows us is that even in the group um, that we would hope would have a better prognosis um, with chemotherapy, that prognosis is poor and we need to do better. And the combination of lenvatinib and pembrolizumab may be one of those options. It's really important to think about um, uh, PD-1 inhibition as monotherapy as well, in particular when we're balancing the toxicities. Because as I said in this trial, this trial had lenvatinib with pembrolizumab. I think it'll be important to see um, what a PD-1 inhibitor, um, such as pembrolizumab or dostalimab alone, uh, may have in this group of patients. And Susanna, this raises a great question for the European uh, physician, because uh, while this combo by FDA has been approved only for MSS tumor, I mean the tumor without instability, in Europe the combo has been approved for advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer disease regardless mismatch repair status asking uh, the, the rising uh, a great problem for the physician how to treat this patient if with the immunotherapy single agent or with the combo. Also because as Susanna reported we need to manage the toxicity and the trade-off of the choice is also the toxicity of the combination because we were not used to manage the adverse events of immunotherapy. And uh, Anna, mm, how do you think uh, we will manage these adverse events? What are, in your opinion, the strategies to manage this new, new class of adverse events we were not used to? Thanks, Keta. Um, I think definitely this is one of the really important areas for oncologists to be aware of. Um, these are new agents. Many of us have limited familiarity with using them. And these toxicities are really new to us. So, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the team and how to look after these patients, um, first of all, we have to have that really great team knowing um, that we have nurses and other specialists who have familiarity with these drugs whom we can call upon to help us. But when we, you know, start a patient on treatment, the, the patient has to be a key player and participant in this because they know what they're experiencing. And I think unlike other treatments we've used, we really have to send the message to them that they need to be communicating with us if anything's changing. And even subtle changes might be worth evaluating. So patient education is really important. And then of course, coming back to that whole team of your specialists who understand, I think this is really important. You need to have specialists who understand that for this group of drugs, a rapid evaluation and diagnosis can be imperative. Um, and so, you know, unlike other situations where people might be waiting two or three weeks to see a specialist, this is a scenario where they maybe need to only wait a day or two and no more than that, maybe even, even less time than that, depending on what's going on with them, because they need to be assessed very quickly. So that whole pathway of very careful monitoring patient education is essential to have that built into your structure to make sure this goes well and uh, patients are treated safely. 
So patients are, patient education is at the heart of the success of um, implementing these treatments into clinical practice as standard of care. So the first thing is that the toxicities that patients may experience are different to what they've been used to with chemotherapy. There's a lot of material out about chemotherapy, and I think there needs to be um, a lot more education hand in hand with educating the um, oncologists, the nurses looking after patients, and of course, the wider um, uh, physicians in practice. Uh, I think that's the key message. And having educational apps, having educational written material, making sure that this is in the relevant languages for our patients um, so that they can be adequately informed, um, so that they feel confident in being treated with immunotherapy. And for the majority of patients, um, they will have um, uh, uh, um, managed, manageable toxicities um, uh, on immunotherapy, for example, in particular uh, as monotherapy. But for that lower percentage of patients, they can have much more serious side effects. And that's the message that we want to make sure that patients alert themselves to us so that we can manage these side effects early. If there is a change in your baseline of how things are, if you're more tired than usual, for example, if you're um, having diarrhea more often than usual, then to alert, that's the key thing, to alert the medical team looking after you. Day or night, it's, it's important that it can be emergency. It's not to um, just wait and see if things improve. I think also you need to have a team or a process in place to be checking in with patients, um, whether it's a nurse in your clinic or yourself or some other process where someone's reaching out and making sure the patient's okay and not sweeping some concerns under the rug, hoping that they'll go away. Susanna, Anna, you reported quite the neutral adverse events, thyroiditis, colitis, hepatitis, hypophysitis. Uh, I'm not sure as a gynecologist or medical oncologist alone we are able to manage this side effect. Don't you believe that in this scenario the rule of a multidisciplinary setting, a multidisciplinary tumor board can help also in the management of this very unusual toxicity. Susanna, what do you think about that? So I think firstly, there are some excellent um, clinical guidelines from uh, multiple societies, for example, the European Society of Medical Oncology, ESMO, um, which have very clear um, instructions and recommendations, which I feel the oncologists can at least initiate um, and of course, there may be more complexities. Um, and that's where, as you say, it's important to utilize the expertise of the endocrinologist or the hepatologist or the gastroenterologist. But I think the initial management um, can be delivered um, by the oncologist, the recognition um, of these side effects, um, and then working together. There may not be um, a specialist on site, for example, in every hospital, in every institution giving um, these new therapies, but they may be able to give and they will be able to give um, advice, for example, over the telephone um, in the basic principles. And then uh, having that dialogue continuously um, 
over the time that the patient is, is having these side effects and to watch that improve. Thank you, Susanna. Anna, how is the situation in your hospital? Do you work in a multidisciplinary setting? You have a dedicated person in the other specialties that work with you in the management of adverse events of immunotherapy? So in our institution, um, we, you know, we have other colleagues who have been using immunotherapy for a long time. So we've, we've gone to them to, to learn what, what uh, their team looks like, who are the specialists they rely on, um, and we, we are obviously connecting with those same members to make sure our patients get access to the right care when needed. I think a really important part of this is this ongoing dialogue between us and the team we have to make sure that everyone remains educated, everyone remembers the, the need for that vigilance and rapid response, rapid evaluation. Um, we need to work together and that, that connectivity between all of us can't be lost. Um, I know that some groups have developed um, immunotherapy tumor boards, which I think is a fantastic idea, where all the different specialties would meet intermittently and perhaps review some toxicities that patients experienced, how they were managed, um, and maybe note things that could be done better or uh, remind people what was done well. And those kind of educational activities really make sure that everyone remains at that high bar for uh, delivering the appropriate care in a timely fashion. Um, developing materials, circulating materials, sharing new content, all of these things have to be done effectively and within uh, a multidisciplinary group of engaged um, care providers, I think that can be done. Thank you both of you for this very interesting discussion. As a take-home message for all the colleagues, platinum-based chemotherapy until now remains the standard of care for advanced or recurrent disease with an option to offer hormonal therapy preferentially to low-grade and slow-progressing tumor. Immunotherapy single-agent pembrolizumab or dostarlimab is, in my opinion, the treatment of choice in MSI unstable tumor, while the combination of pembrolizumab, lembatinib has clearly reported to increase progression-free survival and also overall survival in recurrent endometrial cancer, regardless MSI or low or high tumor. Most important for all of us, we are facing a new era in the management of endometrial cancer and the new side effect with this class of agents. So the multidisciplinary management of this side effect are of utmost importance and also it is absolutely important patient education. Both this aspect will help in maintaining the treatment compliance. And thank you so much for joining us for this educational activity. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.